how can we make a positive impact on the environment, on the society, the people around us? How can we create opportunities for other people that maybe don't have opportunities? If you see someone who looks like you doing something, you're like, oh, well, maybe I can do that too. For us, design really is a holistic approach to life problems. From NYC by Design, this is The Mic, a podcast that offers an inside look into New York City's most creative minds. I'm your host, Debbie Millman. Tune in each month as I engage in conversations exploring projects, products, and inspirations driving New York City's innovative design community. Today, we're hosting a very special episode in conversation with the three recipients of NYC by Design's inaugural Breakout Grant. Though NYC by Design has been around for nearly a decade, it is a newly minted nonprofit organization. This past January, as its first initiative as a nonprofit, NYC by Design introduced their first grant for local independent talent and businesses to turn their next great idea into reality. The Breakout Grant provides funding for independent design businesses to go to market with a new product or project that is in late stage development and can show demonstrated viability. Today, we're happy to introduce the three winners of NYC by Design's 2021 Breakout Grant. Matt Tyson of Moto's Furniture with his reclaimed plastic modular furniture connector as the $15,000 recipient. Danny Arps of Artisan Alliance with her Artisan Mentored Program as a $5,000 recipient. And Gisu Hariri of Hariri and Hariri with their Disaster Relief Folding Pod also as a $5,000 recipient. Join us today as we dive into each of the winning projects and get to know the innovative designers behind them. First, let's meet Matt Tyson, founder of Modos Furniture. Modos Furniture is the design studio focused on developing products that have a positive societal and ecological impact while improving the end user's experience of the product from creation, assembly, disassembly, reconfiguration, and disposal. Modos has developed a tool-free furniture system that uses connectors and boards to make any furniture you want. All of their existing connectors are made from extruded aluminum, but the breakout grant will help Modos develop a new modular furniture connector made from reclaimed plastic extracted from the ocean. Matt, congratulations on receiving the top prize for NYC by Design's inaugural breakout grant. Thank you very much. I'm excited and humbled to be part of this. Matt, can you tell us a little bit about the design journey that led you to establish Moto's Furniture in the first place? It kind of started with identifying that there's so much trash in the world. And I just and I'm and then watching my family and friends move. Let's just uh, in particular focusing on furniture. So I'm watching them buy, trying to source and buy furniture for the homes once after they had just moved and watching all of the furniture from the previous home or apartment on the curb or trying to get rid of it somehow. And there's all these, these just horrible pain points where things no longer 
were designed or made to last like an heirloom, you know, like an heirloom piece of furniture that that's in the family and it keeps moving on from new user to new user instead. But we've found our, I, I saw that furniture is becoming uh, a disposable commodity. So you use it one time, it, it's, not, it's not durable. It doesn't fit your home. You can't take it apart. It's not easy to put together. And so what we did was we, we saw these pain points and then we started, started to look very deep into those pain points. So just first looking at furniture, we looked at the life cycle of the furniture. Where do those materials come from? How do we get them? You know, how are they processed, manufactured? What happens to the product during the use phase? So in some cases, the use phase is the most ecologically harmful phase of, of, of a product. So I, I guess like the best example I could think of to frame this would be, if you think about, let's just say a, a toothbrush. So you could say, hey, what's the most harmful thing about a toothbrush? It's like, oh, some people say, oh, it's the plastic. Other people would say, oh, you have to buy toothpaste. And it's the toothpaste rolls that are, that are harmful because you, the, you end up putting them in the landfill. And actually, the, the most impactful part of a toothbrush is the use phase. So the use phase is that lots of people keep their water running when they brush their teeth. And the same thing with the razor. So... When you start to identify these pain points, you start to see that some are bigger than others and some are more impactful than others. And so the way that we work is that we've collected all of the opportunities or pain points for the environment, for the end user, for the manufacturer, and started to create a really strict design criteria around each of those people or, or, or companies or materials or the environment or society. And so we just started this filtering out ideas and products and, and solutions until we distill down to what you guys now see as motos. Although it looks extremely simple, but it was an extremely complicated process to, to get it to that simplicity. I think the most elegant solutions that look the simplest are the hardest to arrive at. You talked about the criteria. How did you begin to approach the overall design and the functionality of your product? The overall functionality and design of the product was first kind of like, as I was saying, the pain points. So from there, we, we, we're, we're looking at, you know, how can we make a positive impact on the environment, on the, the society, the people around us? How can we create opportunities for other people that maybe don't have opportunities or know how to find opportunities? And then how do we have a great impact for the end user? So those were the three main areas that we wanted to solve. I'm an industrial designer. So as an industrial designer, I, I quickly learned and was disgusted that like everything that we interact with and touch with becomes trash at some point. Even buildings are disposable nowadays. And it's like, oh my goodness, like we really have to think about like what we're putting out into the world. And so we, we really want anything that we touch, we want, to, we want to make it better. So we want to make the environment better. We want to make people's lives better and we want to make opportunities for other people. So our panels for our wood, so easy to manufacture that I could literally take anyone off the street and train them how to make my product in a day. And they would then have those skills to be a manufacturer for me. And so we just took the, the biggest view we could and tried to take the biggest bite out of as many problems as we could and to and to distill it into this one product that we have now. You've said that your goal with Modos is to change people's relationship with furniture. 
Tell us a little bit about how this specific product can achieve this. So along along the lines of, I kind of mentioned the design obsolescence, right? So the products are designed to become obsolete by designers and manufacturers and corporations. I want to interrupt you for one second because this is one of my sort of <laughs> favorite topics to talk about. I realize because I talk about it a lot, a lot of people don't know what it is. So can you talk specifically for just a few seconds about what that is so I, we make sure our listeners understand because this is one of the most pervasive problems in our society today. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really passionate about it. So hopefully my, my passion will come out as as much as I can become as eloquent as possible around it. So like, I might need your help here, but ultimately businesses want you to keep buying the same product over and over again. Although my company is designed for the opposite reason. So I, it's not a great business model, but like, it's a great product model. So design obsolescence is primarily, it's designed to fail or to be, or to be expired. So uh, let's see here. What is something that you guys have recently thrown away or, or broken? Like the, the cup of water. I think one of the best examples of planned obsolescence is fashion. There you go. Yeah. Because you have seasons. So planned obsolescence is when something that has been designed is essentially designed to go out of style in a specific amount of time. Mm -hmm. So you have the buy it toss it, store it kind of mentality, but the toss right. it part is what is so damaging right. to our society yeah. that somehow this heel or this length of skirt or this handbag or this sneaker is no longer fashionable, so much so that it should be discarded. Technology is also an area where this is very prevalent because you keep having new phones, new devices, new things new software, that come out. Computers not strong exactly, enough. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So how did you approach the overall sort of sense of how you wanted to do this with sort of anti-obsolescence in mind? Yeah, I call it stands obsolescence. Nice. Oh, I love that. I love that. First, you need durability in order for a product to last. So it's like choosing our materials. So we use sustainably harvested architectural quality uh, plywood, pretty much. Although we can use all sorts of other types of panels for our furniture. We've used glass even. But, and then we chose aluminum connectors, connectors. So that's, they're about 75% recycled material that's extruded and then cut up into one little sections to make our connectors. So we made something that's really durable and we designed the product to be, the materials to be separated at the end of its life cycle. Or, so if you want, you could actually compost some of our, some of our manufacturers have glue that's soy based. We can actually compost some of our panels and then the aluminum connectors can actually recycle it in a municipal recycling system. So just durability first off is, is part of defeating designed obsolescence. The next part is making things in a mechanical way so that you can, you can interchange small parts or any part. So if something is, comes broken or damaged, you can actually extract that part and put a new part in. Or say you have a shelf in your house, you have a moto shelf in your house. So we designed our shelving not to be thrown away and uh, you have to buy another one for me. You'd have, what you do instead is you take it apart without tools, just using your hands. You put it in a box, you move to your new spot, you measure your new wall and you say, you know what? I need my shelf to be 10 inches wider so that my shelf fits perfectly next to my fireplace and my corner wall. And so then what you do is 
you buy two more boards that are 10 inches long from us. So now you you've expanded your custom shelving to fit perfectly inside of your home. So rather than buying a whole new system, you're investing in uh, a modular system that adapts and changes with you. So you can continue to make your shelving higher or you can change the functionality of it. So we've actually have a handful of furniture stories from customers where they've bought shelving and furniture and they've, they've sent photos of it. every time they move, it's adapted and turned into something different. Like literally like shelving turning into coffee tables and end tables. And, and it, I mean, it kind of goes on, but they, people make all sorts of interesting stuff out of it because they, they find a need. So that's another way we, we do it. So adaptability, being able to, to change this function, what else there might be. Good. Well, tell us a little bit about how the new modular furniture piece that will be fabricated using reclaimed ocean plastic mm-hmm. will work. Tell us about how you're going to get that plastic and how you intend to use it for your furniture and connectors. Sure. I would love to actually go to the Pacific Gyre and pick out all that trash. You know, that, that's something I'm a, I'm a dumpster diver, you know, by trade, you know, so like, I love, I, th- I see so much opportunity in waste. But realistically, we're going to partner with a manufacturer that sources that material, processes it, cleans it, and prepares it for standard manufacturers. So we're going to buy that material ready to go off the shelf, like ready for a manufacturer to injection mold. How will this expansion differ from existing Modos furniture pieces? The way this new product differentiates itself or is more interesting is that it's, it's so approachable. So before our extruded aluminum connectors have a a rounded interior. And so the boards have to be rounded, which takes a little bit of specialty skill, special tools. Now the plastic connectors have a square opening, which allow any three quarter inch panel to fit into there. So it makes it extremely accessible to anyone that can find plywood, either buy it, reclaim it. I started to imagine that if you can find wood or panels at three quarter inch anywhere in the world, then you can, those people that can find that material can start to uh, empower themselves to make their own furniture or their own structures of, of whatever it might be. Matt, you mentioned in your proposal that you plan to partner with the Brooklyn Navy Yard and the Department of Education to develop this project. In what ways will you collaborate with these organizations to bring the product to life? I've actually been collaborating for years now. The Brooklyn Navy Yard has a really excellent program where they match high school level students with internships for different companies throughout the Navy Yard. So the way the Department of Education works into there is that the students actually get paid a fair wage to work for these companies. It's been really impactful. After the internship is ends, there's the possibility of the interns getting hired and then moving on to a, a full-time employment. It's been really, it's been really life-changing for some of my interns. We've had some really great successes coming out of it, you know, from the internship to jobs with Google, for example, you know. So that to credit to the interns, of course, because like there's some really exceptionally brilliant people that come through and just giving them the opportunity to like show themselves all their skills, show their creativity and their drive has made a really big difference for them. Plus, like it's really great for my business as well. How else do you foresee Moto's Furniture expanding in the next few years? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, it, it's hard to say like what exactly what we'll be doing, but 
our mission is always the same. Our mission is to have a positive impact on the ecology or our earth, let's just call it simply, you know, so the environment and, and, and support people around us or support other people in the world. So if people need help, you know, it's our customers that empower the, the business to support and help the ecology and, and economies or other people in the world. So I would like to see us as like, you know, if there's a natural disaster, if there's a hurricane or a tornado, like I'll go there and boots on the ground and maybe we can actually figure out a way to use our connectors to create a, a, a temporary shelter or to create a shelf or a table so that people, uh, so that medics can have a, a clean place to work off the ground or something, you know, like, I don't know what the needs are. Like everyone's good. People are going to tell me what the needs are. You know, I'm just going to help them, you know, solve the problem with, with that tool, with our tools. Thank you for wanting to do that. Matt Tyson, congratulations on you, being man. the winner of this really special inaugural grant. I'd love for you to stick around because I want to have a conversation with all the winners after I interview each of the individual winners. Is that okay? Yeah, that's wonderful. I'd be happy to stick around. Thank you very much. Now I'd like to introduce you to Danny Arps, an interior designer who bootstrapped her way to designing office spaces for top startup companies throughout New York City. Danny has over 11 years of design experience, opening her eponymous firm, Danny Arps LLC, in 2014. In 2019, Danny decided that she wanted to expand and rebrand her company to include brokerage, project management, and a furniture design business all under one umbrella. As part of this expansion, Danny is launching Artisan Mentored, a diversity-focused mentorship program that will offer clients the opportunity to select a student from an artisan nonprofit affiliate or school to join their projects. From sales to design to construction, there is no better way to learn than to be part of the process. Throughout the breakout grant, Danny will focus on building the mentorship program to provide greater opportunities for future generations of designers in New York City. Danny, it is an absolute pleasure to meet you. Congratulations on being a recipient of NYC by Design's breakout grant. Thank you so much. I was incredibly excited, me and my business partner, to receive this grant. We were actually so surprised, but we're really excited, you know, what we can do with the funds and excited to launch the program. Tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are today in your design career. It's such an interesting journey. How did you go from a budding professional to now operating your own firm, your own eponymous firm? Sure. So when I graduated from Pratt in 2009, it was like peak no job time. So, you know, (laughs) we had to be kind of very savvy about how our career opportunities would come about. And one of the ways I did that is that I would always like search Craigslist. It's like an ancient site now. Nobody uses it. But just to kind of see what was out there, what opportunities were available. And one of the first opportunities I landed on happened to be a startup company. And, you know, my first client was Code Academy. I don't know if you guys have heard of them, but, you know, they teach people how to code. They're, they're doing great. But they also, in the startup world, they have this thing called, like, meetups, essentially, like, monthly meetups where founders from different companies come together. And they meet to kind of discuss their industry and how, ways to help each other. And I kind of had it in my mind, like, if, if I do a really good job for this one company, 
you know, the potential for all the clients to be in that one room is is great. And that's kind of exactly what happened. You know, they were like, oh, Zach, who did your space? Danny did your space. And so it kind of just kind of ballooned from there. And then, of course, I did have experience working at some other smaller residential, high-end residential and uh, hospitality firms. But I always knew that I needed to go out on my own. And fortunately, it, it ended up that way. Tell us about how you realized how this sort of all-in-one business was something missing from the market and why you decided to build it that way. It always was this question, and me and my colleagues, my architect friends, my designer friends, we would always just chat about why is this, this process seem to be so difficult? Like, no matter how organized you are and how on top of your individual responsibilities you are, it just always seems to be disjointed where... You have, you know, brokerage finding the space and negotiating the lease that are not necessarily the terms that the client needs. And, you know, you kind of have to end up working with the client to see, like, are these terms fair? Does this make sense? And it's like, you know, it's not my job as an interior designer to do that. But, of course, I'm going to help my client as in any way possible. And then, you know, sometimes with project management, it's represented by the building. And so it's just like, how can we make this a more just seamless process that is better for everyone, that's transparent, and that we can get the job done in a shorter time frame and, you know, be more budget conscious. And I'm like, why don't we just have this all together? And fortunately, my business partner kind of was in the same thinking, and she's from the brokerage end, and she's like, you know, one of the best in the city. And so we decided, like, why don't we just come together and, and do this? And so we've worked tirelessly for the past year and a half now to, to create that. What inspired you to develop the mentorship program as part of your company offering an expansion? Part of it is obviously inspired by my own experience. The design industry in general is not very diverse. It's you know not necessarily inclusive. I was the only Black woman in my graduating class, and I think there was maybe a few other Black students there. And just in my line of work on a day-to-day basis, I'm usually the only like Black woman in the room oftentimes the only woman in the room. And, you know, it's just so much more interesting to have a more diverse opinion and and background and just point of view in terms of design. And so we were thinking just like as women and women of color, like how can we make sure to kind of spread the knowledge and the and the wealth in terms of like what potentials are there in our industry because I think a lot of people just don't know a lot of students just don't know that you can be an interior designer like that's a career you can be a broker like nobody knows what it is no one knows that it's it's such a lucrative career but nobody really knows about it unless you know about it and so we're like why can't we have a program where we bring in kids and let them experience how interesting this industry can be What are some of the key skills you hope to see the mentees gain through the program? And what other job opportunities do you foresee them being able to potentially take advantage of? Well, in terms of just interior design, especially kind of how it's portrayed in in the media and on TV, people don't understand that it's really this conceptually based technical career that takes a lot of thought and skill in translating those concepts into actual spaces that you can live in and function in. And I think, you know, teaching students that this is like actually a very interesting and thought-provoking career is something that we really want people to know. And, you know, the processes involved from concept to completion 
and just in terms of like how you interact with like executives and you know those are skills that are not typically taught in high school you know no you don't really know about those in, even until after you graduate college so you know getting them in there at a very young age would be really helpful and you know possibly inspire them to be designers and you know add to the industry themselves Talk about the type of students that you have in the mentorship program. How do you find them? How do they apply? How do they get selected? And how long do you work with them? Yeah. So, I mean, that's one of the main reasons that we want to have a consultant on to kind of navigate what that process looks like. Because, you know, thinking about the Gloria School of the Arts or my alma mater, Pratt, you know, where they have programs already, kind of navigating through them to kind of see what students that we can work with you know like a better chance was another one that I was thinking about just like these these students that are from underprivileged backgrounds that don't necessarily have the ability to be exposed to these industries is you know really why we want to establish what this mentorship program looks like and we want them from the beginning to the end so they understand the full process you know almost for it to be like accredited course perhaps that they can apply towards like their college degree. And what age can students first begin to apply? I would like to say sophomore year of high school, because I feel like that gives you enough time to see if this is something, you know, to even just even begin to think about what your next career path is like after you graduate high school. You talk about in your proposal, the alarming lack of diversity in the design industry. And that is something that I also see every day in my practice and the community and in culture. What can we do to encourage more minorities to start really thinking more seriously about design, even beyond a mentorship program? How are ways that any professional can help to really increase the range of people that become involved in our communities? It's interesting, and that's a great question, because it's kind of like, I mean, to simply answer representation, because if you see someone who looks like you doing something, you're like, oh, well, maybe I can do that too. But it's like, how do you get to that level? How does someone become an interior designer? How does someone become an architect? You know, there are a few really phenomenal like architects like David Ajay, for example, who are out there doing incredible things. Um, but how do you get to that level? And I think people become more interested in careers, you know, as they see other people like them in those careers. So, you know, representation to answer. But again, it's a bit more easier said than done, right? Danny, my last question for, for this part of our interview is, is really what kind of projects do you think will provide your mentees with the most rewarding type of experience? I mean, I really love what I do. And part of the reason why I'm, you know, working on these kind of more commercial startup offices is just because the flexibility that I'm allowed in terms of, you know, aesthetic and concept is huge. My clients really trust me and which I love. And they're really kind of more focused on what their business is. And just because of the culture of startups, they're just kind of like, if we hire you, we trust you to do what you're going to do. And also these projects tend to go really fast because they grow really fast. And so that's why we're like, you know, having a student in there from the beginning to the end, they can really be part of the process. They are like, if there are ideas they want to throw out there, 
that's something that our clients would most likely be like, that, oh, that's a great idea. Let's do that. And so the thought that they could actually see something that they thought of, that they conceived, become an actual project in the time that they're with us would be really amazing. Well, thank you for helping to find and empower the next generation of designers working in, in our future. Please stick around because I'd love to talk with you, with Matt and with Gisu as well as we move into the next segment. Great. Thanks so much. Now let's meet Gisu Hariri, one of the founding members of Hariri and Hariri Architecture, a New York City-based multidisciplinary architecture and design firm. Along with her sister Moshkan, Gisu established Hariri and Hariri in 1986 with the vision to establish a holistic, boundaryless enterprise ranging from master planning and architecture to interior design, furniture, lighting, product design, and jewelry. In their proposal for the breakout grant, Hariri and Hariri are looking to develop their disaster relief folding pod with a mission to save human lives and create a technologically challenging, ecologically responsible, and morally rewarding alternative shelter for the 21st century. The temporary, easy-to-install shelters will be used for displaced people through natural disasters, as well as by global poverty and wars. Gisu, welcome to the mic. Congratulations for being a winner of NYC by Design's Breakout Grant. Thank you, Debbie. I'm delighted to be here. And uh, this grant truly, I think, is encouraging and appreciated because it acknowledges the importance of the project that we are doing. And as you mentioned, it's a huge undertaking on our end. But now there is no stopping for us. This grant will open the doors for us to keep going forward. Wonderful. It's such an important and significant project. I'd love to speak with you about the Disaster Relief Folding Pod and your vision behind it. As architects by practice, what motivated you and your sister to branch out and explore this particular area of design, which at first glance, what, what might not directly associate with architecture? Well, as you mentioned, for us, design really is a holistic approach to life problems, if you will. So we have always been doing multiple of different types of projects. And because of this holistic philosophy, our practice has always been multidisciplinary. And I always think it also comes and is derived, this kind of philosophy and thinking, from our Persian heritage and always being influenced and, if you will, inspired by polymaths that the Persians, you know, respected and always talked about such as Omar Khayyam, who was a philosopher and a mathematician, an astronomer, poet, and also wrote treaties on mechanics, geography, mineralogy, and music. So we've never seen different design disciplines as distinct and separate from one another, but being part of the same thinking and have always been interested to introduce projects or work on projects that in fact had multiple of, you know, disciplines, if you will, involved. 
you know, I think what is important is a lot of times as academicians, because I was teaching also for a while in schools of architecture and design, Parsons School of Design being one, Columbia Architecture Program being one, you we get a little bit too caught up into theories of design. And I think we have to make sure that we don't get trapped only in theoretical thinking, but also allow human experience and humanity to take over our projects. And instead of design of buildings, instead of design of the project per se, and, you know, invite human inhabitation in whatever we do and their participation. So this kind of integration of technology and inventive use of materials, a sense of place, social agenda, which are qualities that often are considered mutually exclusive, for us are catalytically coexistent and coexist. And so the folding pod project for disaster relief, in a way, is very consistent, basically, to in continuation of our approach and philosophical search for revealing the essence of existence and things that are important and, you know, which is the aim of this project. The right to shelter is universal. It should be universal. What motivated you to initiate this project to begin with? For years now, we have been interested in housing and in particular prefabricated affordable housing. You know, with the wars in Middle East and immigrants and immigration issues in the United States and the political, you know, upheavals that we've gone through for the past, let's say, four or five years, we started looking, and according to the UN refugee agency data, 68.5 million people have forcibly been displaced around the world. That is the most since the World War II. I mean, it, it has an impact. Most people remain displaced within their own home countries. But, you know, one city is bombarded or ISIS came and pushed the whole town out. And, you know, so now they are all homeless, basically, in their own in their own country. And 25 million people worldwide have fled to other countries as refugees. And so UN estimates 100 million people are homeless worldwide. I mean. I just cannot even imagine the amount of people, and it really hurts our feeling, if you will, as human beings. With this mass displacement, homelessness, pandemic, we believe it was our social and moral responsibility to design shelters that are affordable, transportable, and adaptable to each social conditions without losing its design and architecture and integrity. Yeah, that's one of the things that I think is really most intriguing about the pods. It's it's not just the functionality, it's also the form that is actually quite beautiful. It has a sort of origami-like structure. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you approach the pods form and functionality when you began designing it. 
our belief was that just because you don't have a home or you are, it doesn't mean you are less of a human being. And as you mentioned, you know, having a home really is a human right issue for us. It goes beyond the border of architecture and design. And so we envisioned this pod, maybe some of it was inspired by what we see in New York, almost like a idea of a cardboard box when it comes in packages flat. And then, you know, with a little bit of, in few minutes, you can actually make it into a box. So it becomes a container for your belongings to store. And we said, well, why can't we do something like that with architecture? Why can't you have structures that actually fold? Because it's easy to transport them. It's easy to stack them. It's easy to store them when they are not necessary. And it's easy, then easily put them back as a shelter that when it will contain human life. And so this all started because this was how we were thinking about it. Conceptually, then we started looking at origami, which is actually the art of folding paper. And you've seen with a one sheet of paper, you can actually create amazing objects and amazing geometries. And so this is how it all um, started. And everybody thought it is not possible. Architecture cannot, you know, unfold, cannot collapse, if you will. <laughs> and the building then become to live and create space so people can shelter people. Well, thank you for creating something that really can change the world, really can help make people's lives better everywhere. I'd like to bring Danny and Matt back so we can have a conversation together. Welcome back, Danny. Welcome back, Matt. Congratulations again on being the inaugural breakout grant winners from NYC by Design. I'd love to ask you all, when approaching a new design project or product, what are some of the key goals you have in mind when you're starting? What do you envision the sort of future with your particular design project or product as your beginning? When I first am thinking about a project or like a design for a space, and I know it's going to sound a little bit like cheesy, but like form and function, obviously, those are the most important things. And I think they're equally as important as the other. But like, you know, people are going to have to live in the space. They're going to have to use it. They're going to have to work here. Does it function? Are they going to be able to be productive in it? And equally, is it going to make them feel a certain way? And is that, you know, it, it should be a positive emotion associated with that feeling. So beyond anything in terms of like, you know, the design itself, I just want someone to walk away being like, this is a space that makes me feel great. I got my work done. And hopefully, ideally, it's something that's also sustainable. That's something that I think about more and more. And I think just in general, designers all should think about sustainability. So maybe something to add to that form, function, and sustainability, the most important things in any good design. Matt, how about you? I always start with compassion. So it's, or I guess, or empathy maybe. So when starting with compassion, I look at my end goals and the end user, you know, what are they going to experience? How are they going to feel? 
what does it take for them to have an experience that I think is like flawless? So many products make people feel frustrated and maybe feel stupid. That's like something I've always dealt with. So like for me, I'm dyslexic. And so, and I was never diagnosed as a child. And so growing up, I just was always challenged with like, oh, I, I might feel stupid. I'm feeling stupid. And so this idea is like, oh, well, I really want to design products that, that never hinder people that just make a flawless experience. So in my past, I've always, anything that does that, it's always focused on like, how is that person going to feel? And then it's like, and then I'm obviously, I'm, I'm very concerned about the environment and how the product is used and processed and where it comes from and where it's the material streams and et cetera. And then if we can do additional things to have a positive impact. So I kind of swing, I always just try to go for the, the triple bottom line and figure out how many things I can balance and get really creative about it. It's not the fastest process, but it's probably one of the more impactful ways to solve a problem. Kisu, what about you? We start with functionality and having the greater social good in mind because I, we've seen a lot of products that don't function and they're very annoying. And as you said, you buy them, but you throw them away in, uh, you know, in short time. So if you have a product that doesn't function, I think is, is already a no-starter. Sensuality and uh, desirability, I think you've got to love your home. You've got to love your product. And, uh, you know, then price could vary a little bit because you love something so much. You figure out a way to actually have it. And this brings kind of the idea of having poetry and uh, beauty in the world. For a while, poetry and beauty were not used in terms of design, but I think it's very important. And forgive me, Matt, but the more uh, women are in the design world, I think we're going to see much more beautiful, sensual products. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so too. Affordability is obviously important because it brings kind of equality and justice. I think price uh, should not make a product better or worse. And in fact, if you have a great proje- uh, product or a project, everyone would want it and you know they should be able to have it. Environmental impact and obviously sustainability, everyone else pointed out, is very important because we want to keep our planet safe. We've destroyed it as it is. So now it's time to go back and start repairing. Thank you. I have three New York City specific questions. As a native New Yorker, I always love to ask New York City questions. So I'm going to ask one New York City question of each of you. Uh, Danny, first with you, how do you think design in New York City differs from other communities? Well, we're a giant melting pot. And, you know, I'm technically a New Yorker now. I've been here for over 10 years. So that counts. Maybe I'm a, little, I'm a little bit biased, but we have like the best of the best, you know, in the country here, the best designers, the best architects, the best artists, like everybody who is the best of where they came from comes here. So just in terms of what kind of talent that brings and the diversity of like everybody's backgrounds, there's just, you know, Every type of design you can think of is in New York City. You know, you can go from Chinatown, you can go to Harlem, you can go to, you know... Little Korea, yes. Little Korea, exactly. And it's just like, the architecture is stunning here. And as one of the... the, I I hesitate to say good things about the pandemic is that I... Because I live in Harlem myself, and so I actually walked 
the entirety of Harlem, like from Central Park North all the way up to the Cloisters. And I didn't realize how absolutely stunning my little neighborhood is. And, you know, that's something that you can't get in different cities around the country, especially because it's just not as diverse. Matt, what is unique about the New York City design community? Danny really nailed it there, the melting pot. But I think what's particularly unique about it is possibility and action, right? It's like just anything that you could possibly ever want to do in New York City, like in, in the world, like you could probably make it here or create the team to make it happen in New York City. And then it's just all of the designers, artists, and other people just actually taking actions on their ideas, their dreams, and making things happen. For example, in New York, NYCX designs, like you guys are amazing, like helping propel and empower people to actually create their visions. And, and all of you, everyone in this, on this podcast here, it's extremely inspiring. So I think like really this, like the action that's happening in New York City, the, the actually taking those steps, those steps to make something happen is, is what really sets us apart. And Gisu, how do you envision the future of New York City design? New York City definitely has the energy and possibility, as everyone pointed out, because of its diversity. I mean, it is a truly melting pot of people. However, I think the design world perhaps is not as diverse as what I'd like to see it. We still see quite a bit of actually racism and sexism, both in design and architecture field. Yeah because they are still quite male-dominated. I would say even in industrial design, perhaps is the same issue. So I'm hoping that the future, which you have started opening up by what we see here and the introduction of the winners, is going to change that. I can see that we're going to see much more, perhaps, green spaces in New York City, because there are now talks about even Park Avenue being close to cars and being more, you know, like a park-like pedestrian place. So I think environment and climate change is a big agenda on New York City's inhabitants. And hopefully together we can also inspire the world to come along and, you know, address it and change what we have been doing. I didn't hear that about Park Avenue. That's an exciting, exciting idea. So I have one last question for you all as we close our show today. What do you think is the most meaningful impact a designer can make through their work, whether that be social, environmental, cultural, societal, political, any possible range of ideas? What do you think is the most meaningful impact a designer can make through their work? Danny? It's a great question. And I think a designer needs to like evoke a conversation and it needs to be relevant and it needs to be timely, but it also needs to be timeless. And when I say that, it means that, you know, whatever, whether it's like a space or maybe whether it's an actual product, it needs to be something that is relevant in the climate. And it's, you know, what did, what did this mean at the time it was created? How, how did this, this space affect people? Was it something that was like a social exhibition speaking on the protests that are happening now? Was it like an actual product that helps with you know, homelessness? I think that you can, design obviously should be for beauty, but it also needs to be for people. And I think 
it needs to be a, a, a conversation that can be started based on whatever that, that item or space is that you've designed. It's really impacting others. So and this idea of being able to propagate or, or, or spread the impact to, to others. So like kind of Danny was saying, like creating, creating a conversation that allows other people to have conversations and has paradigm shifts. Maybe we, we change the way we think about other people. We change the way we think about the environment or trash, you know. So it's really evoking a movement or a change in, in the way we relate to people, environment, society. Gisu, the last word is with you. What do you think is the most meaningful impact a designer can make through and with their work? I think design can, in a way, connect the body and the mind with inventiveness and imagination. We can create value, whether, again, it's value in terms of society, value in terms of products, and value in terms of sales. And, you know, we saw when art and technology come together, you know, as, again, Steve Jobs said, it's good design is good business. And ultimately, that's what everyone is after. Our firm belief is that design is fundamental in improving quality of life. And with an integrated, unified approach, it can actually become a total work of art as well. Thank you so much for joining us today to speak with the winners of NYC by Design's Breakout Grant, the inaugural group. We can't wait to see these projects come to life, and we hope this conversation inspired you to stay curious and innovate through design. I think that showcasing the work of these three breakout grant winners really proves that the condition of design can positively reflect the condition of our culture, and we can see that future with optimism and grace and generosity of spirit. A huge thank you to our guests and winners, Matt Tyson, Danny Arps, and Gisu Hariri for joining us today. Follow NYC by Design on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and subscribe to the newsletter to stay in the know about the latest opportunities for New York City's design community. Thanks again for joining us today on NYC by Design's The Mic. Let's talk design again next month. <laughs>